It is so embarrassing to see this machine politician that really doesn't have a clue, a team that's completely obsessed by politics rather than policy and is absolutely shambolic when it comes to governance. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Steve Hilton Show. Um, there's the, the stories just keep getting bigger and worse, actually. If you think about what's going on here in America and around the world, it just feels like we are just inexorably being dragged further and further into chaos and danger and instability. The exact opposite of what we were promised from uh, this administration. I mean, remember all those promises from the people who said, well, finally, after the chaos of the Trump years, we're going to have Joe Biden, who, you know, the experience in foreign policy, the adults are back in the room and they know how to do governance. It's all going to be great. And it just gets worse and worse. And the two big ones, you know, alternating and taking the headlines this week, of course, the situation in the Middle East and the situation on the southern border. And they both actually represent the same fatal flaw in the approach of this administration, which is exactly the opposite of what they claim. So they claim that now you have serious people who are good at policy, good at governance and so on. It's exactly the opposite. What you see happening are the consequences of a totally superficial and partisan political approach to policymaking in both of these situations. Because what you're seeing are the consequences of just coming in there on day one and saying, here's our policy. We'll do exactly the opposite of what Trump did. Whether it's good or bad, no value, we just Trump's bad, we'll do the opposite. Totally political, totally partisan. And so in terms of the Middle East situation, on day one, it's like, well, Trump did it all wrong. And, you know, he had this maximum pressure campaign on Iran, which, by the way, put Iran back in its box. We didn't hear anything from Iran, partly because they were squeezed for funds. They didn't have no money to fund all these proxies. I mean, right now we're focused on the Houthis and their threat to global trade through the shipping channels. But I mean, all of the proxies, Hezbollah, Hamas, of course, all of them funded by Iran for years. And the funding dried up because Trump put sanctions in place on Iran's oil and actually directly on Hamas in that case. What did Biden do immediately? Lift the sanctions, remove the pressure on Iran. So what do they do? As the money started flowing in, hundreds of millions of dollars flowing in, they started channeling the money, obviously, totally predictably, to their proxies to cause mayhem and chaos in the Middle East because Iran, as anyone who's studied the situation knows, has a very clear mission to drive America and the West out of the Middle East and to become the regional superpower. That's its goal. I mean, it always has been for the Iranian regime. And so we're now seeing the consequences of that, not just in, with Hamas, the well-funded Hamas, coordinated, by the way, the Hamas attack, let's remember, because it's been well reported in the Wall Street Journal elsewhere, backed up by the New York Times, many other sources, that these attacks, the Hamas attacks, was coordinated in specific meetings that took place in Lebanon, organized by Iran, by the Revolutionary Guard. And so that's what happened when Biden and his, and his team lifted the sanctions and lifted the maximum pressure campaign. And why did they do that? They did it because they were desperate to get Iran back into the nuclear deal, because it's all about ancient revisiting the past and saying, well, we had the nuclear deal and Trump killed the nuclear deal, so we want to kill Trump's killing of the nuclear deal. You know, it's just ridiculous, childish, not assessing the situation on the ground and what the right policy is for today, but purely political. 
and and this is the consequence a much more chaotic and dangerous and unstable world and it's of course not just the middle east you've seen it uh with russia and putin what did he do there <laughs> just reverse what trump did so trump goes on about nord stream and put sanctions on the nord stream pipeline the lifeline for putin that's where he gets his huge amounts of resources from to fund his military machine and so on what does the biden administration do cancel those sanctions which what does that do combined with biden's um humiliating and pathetic surrender in afghanistan against the advice of the military let's remember that always it was a very personal decision for biden not just to withdraw from active military operations in afghanistan but to completely withdraw including surrendering bagram and so on let's just remember all this because it's important that was biden's personal decision we know from millie and others and they testified in congress to say we advised to keep that force on the in, in remaining in afghanistan to protect our operations and keep an ongoing presence there biden overruled that that sent a message of weakness which along with the cancellation of the sanctions on putin's pipeline gave putin the green light to invade ukraine so when people say we didn't have all this chaos we didn't have actual war in europe imminent war it seems in the middle east hundreds of attacks nearly 200 attacks on us um operations in the middle east just in the last couple of months with barely a response none of that was happening what connects all of this it is an ideology that i've i've said this before it's an ideology of appeasement which is this philosophy that you see with biden and and the team around him which is if you and because it's the, the remember the team very much the same team you had with obama and you had the same approach there um it's an ideology of appeasement that says if you're nice to bad people they'll be good and in fact history teaches us exactly the opposite of the is the case if you're nice to bad people they get worse and it leads to war and we saw that in the 20th century and we're seeing it now and it's the same mentality you saw it with obama and assad in syria the red line that was never enforced and just led to more atrocities from assad you saw it with putin where he invaded you crimea nothing happened and so this this is just the exact opposite of what we were sold when they said you had to put biden in the white house to counteract the chaos of the trump years much more chaos much more danger as a result of their highly superficial approach on policy just reversing whatever trump did and this ideology of appeasement and you see the same thing at the southern border now, on day 1 and again this is not a partisan point the new york times just reported very very clearly the incredible story in the new york times just this week biden's immigration hopes were dashed well what was his hope that if you just remove all the restrictions all the policies put in place by the trump administration to bring some semblance of order to the chaos that was that, that had been at the the southern border for so long which resulted in the in in absolutely appalling humanitarian outcomes the vile human trafficking that's just exploded so to what did biden did they just reverse all of that with totally predictable outcomes you know he said it and biden himself said it didn't he in that, that debate in 2019 in in the primaries for the democrats where he said yeah you know my i want a surge at the border my message to you if if you know come to america that's what he said and they did they took him at his word and now we have this situation totally out of control i mean the board the official numbers 8 million or so people 
in the last you know couple of years in the in, under the Biden administration, huge huge numbers, unbelievable numbers that no, it's just impossible to manage that kind of um, inflow of people. Whatever your views on immigration, and I've always said I'm pro-immigration, but it has to be controlled. That's what most people I believe in America are pro-immigration. I'm an immigrant, <laughs> and we are a nation of immigrants, but the public consent for immigration depends on government control of immigration, which they've completely abandoned. So now you have the situation when they go from one extreme to the other, and now you have Biden running around saying, oh, I'm going to sh you know, shut the border, shut the border, give me the tools. I mean, it's just, it is so embarrassing to see. And it is all a result of this completely amateurish mediocrity in the White House, this machine politician that really doesn't have a clue, a team that's completely obsessed by politics rather than policy and is absolutely shambolic when it comes to governance. That's what we've ended up with. And the consequences for the world, let alone America, are just truly terrible. All right, for our policy uh, segment this week, we're going to talk about toilets. We're going to start with toilets anyway. Why would we start talking about toilets? Is the toilet a massive policy issue that we need to pay attention to? Well, it is when it's a San Francisco toilet, a public toilet in San Francisco. Here's the headline from the New York Times, that well-known right-wing ultra-maga outlet. San Francisco tried to build a $1.7 million toilet. It's still not done. It is an absolutely stunning story of bureaucratic bungling and chaos and delay. And as the headline suggests, there's a, a, a newly created public space in the city of San Francisco, a um, place where you know people gather and it's a nice place, fantastic, well done, and they want to put a public toilet there. And so that's what they, they did and they went through the process and the city tried to do it. Um, and it's more than a year later, I think it was 15 months ago, they started this process. The, the, the cost was going to be $1.7 million for a toilet. Um, and it's still not done, nowhere near done. They're now thinking maybe it'll get done in three years. And why is this interesting? I mean, I've got sort of ridiculous, another ridiculous story about San Francisco. Fine, we can laugh at San Francisco and we should because it's an absolute disaster on so many levels. But what it really tells you, and this I think is, is the deep point that applies way beyond this toilet in San Francisco and even in California. This is absolutely the inevitable consequence of the kind of policymaking that we've seen from the left in the last few years, where you have implemented at the federal level and the state level and the local level policies that are really just the express. I mean, I, people use the term virtue signaling. It's not really a virtue. I don't want to use that term. It's ideology signaling. Policies that are put in place to send a message that we care about climate or race or equity, whatever it may be. And so they put these policies in and the politician says them, and usually it starts on Twitter because usually they're pandering to their activist base. And they say, we must do something about it, more on climate, more on this, more on that. And then it gets turned into policy. And then the policy gets turned into regulations and processes and procedures. And it's picked up by the bureaucracy. And then before you know it, it takes years and millions of dollars to build one toilet in San Francisco. But the specific, when you go into the specific reasons why this has happened, and you go through the processes, this article brilliantly does, all the things that have caused this toilet to be so expensive and so delayed are all policy decisions that, that in another context, you can imagine Democrat politicians proudly arguing for 
you know, we need we, we need to go through environmental reviews and climate reviews and 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 racial justice um, consultations and community consultations. All these things sound great if you like that kind of thing. And to, and these days on the left, that's what it's all about. This kind of thing. But when it's turned into policy, you just end up in a situation where basically nothing can happen. And this is a really serious problem. We can laugh at the toilet in San Francisco, but actually this is happening right across the country. And, and it's particularly in, in, in Democrat run areas, but now it's being applied at the national level in regulations and rules that, that, are, that, that, that someone says in a speech, that Biden says in a speech or Kamala Harris, you know, they will say some you know, throwaway phrase like, every aspect of the federal government needs to promote equity. But then someone will take that phrase and, and it turns into, you know, equity audits for every part of the federal government. And that trickles down in a negative way to, you know, this kind of bureaucracy that holds everything up, makes it impossible to get anything done, makes it harder and harder to run a business. And the real world consequences of that are really serious. You find businesses relocating. Certainly in California, you see this. this is one of the main drivers. I mean, you've got hundreds of, of, of bills, for example, in the state legislature. Each one of them on their own, you could make a case for, and they seem, you know, on, the, on its face, not, not that bad. But when it's hundreds of them layered on top of each other, it makes it impossible to do business here. That's why in California, just, just now, the survey came out again for the second year in a row, California is, has the worst business climate in America. And it's the direct result because, of course, here in California, you have th this kind of policy making in order to express an ideological position rather than solve a problem is that it's absolute extreme, just as everything in California is the extreme expression of where the modern left is. And so that's what you end up with. You end up with a state where it's impossible to build anything, impossible to do anything. Businesses are leaving. Um, people are leaving. Other states are benefiting. Um, incomes, uh, the, the state's revenue is falling. Taxes are going up. We have the highest taxes, the worst poverty, massive budget deficit. I mean, this is where it gets you. So you start with this story of the $1.7 million toilet. But what it really does is illuminate the absolute catastrophe of this kind of ideologically driven policymaking. And it's happening here in California and it's spreading to the federal government because as they love to brag, um, California leads the nation. Yeah, it leads the nation in this kind of extremism, which is actually causing massive problems right across the country. All right, for California Corner today, Susan Shelley is back with us, our great friend Susan, who knows everything about what's going on. And if, you, if you're if you a regular uh, listener of this show, then you will remember that the last time Susan and I were chatting, um, we got into Proposition 1, which is on the ballot. The ballots are arriving any minute. You'll have them um, in this uh, new system we have, where you basically have election month and the, and the ballots arriving through the mail. Uh, Proposition 1 on the March ballot, so enter now. This is not something for November. We, it's very important to be well informed about this. And it is the main one that Gavin Newsom is pushing, that the Democrats are pushing. I just was reading today, there's an enormous amount of money behind it. They are pushing this Proposition 1. Uh, they want to get it passed. Susan and I touched on it a, a bit last time, and we said we'll come back to it because there's so much to understand about this. And we're going to do deep dive just on this. And now is the perfect time to do it as the ballots are about to arrive. So, Susan, over to you. Tell us about Proposition 1. 
Okay, Proposition 1 has two components. It is a $6.38 billion bond, which means borrowed money. And when it's paid back, it's going to cost the taxpayers 10 to $12 billion. So when you pay for something with bond money, twice as much as they tell you. $6.38 billion bond. And also, it robs the counties of money that they receive under Proposition 63 from a couple of decades ago, which was the Mental Health Services Act. And that generates 2 to $3.5 billion per year. It's, it's a tax of 1% on incomes over a million dollars, so it varies with the stock market and with people's income. Mm -hmm. But it's up to $3.5 billion per year for county mental health services and mm -hmm. also workforce training to provide the jobs to take care of the people who need the services. Prop 1 not only borrows $6.38 billion, but it mm -hmm. robs the money from the counties. Mm -hmm. And it does it in several ways. First, it reduces the share of the money that goes to the counties and increases the share of the money that goes to the state. Right. It, it's currently 5%. It would go to 10% to the state. So the counties have to make do with less right off so the bat. So it's a 5% cut in mental health funding for every county in California. Exactly. The, more mm -hmm. of it goes to the state, to the unelected bureaucrats. So then... It also requires that the counties spend about 30% of what's left on housing instead of mental health services. Right. And this also forfeits the federal matching funds. So they lose two ways on that. Wow. They have to stop spending their money on services and give it to contractors to build housing, according to this, this state law. And then also they lose the federal matching funds because Medicare, Medicaid does not match housing funds, only health care funds. The fourth way is that the bond is going to build treatment places, unspecified places for mental health and substance use treatment. Mm -hmm. And then the counties have to use their funds to run those places. So they have wow. less money for the services they provide now. They're mandated to provide more services. That's only going to lead to pressure for tax increases. So you're going to lose six different ways on this measure. The stunning thing about this is that the entire thing is presented as, you know, finally we're dealing with the mental health crisis, and finally we, you know, we're going to we're going to tackle this mental health problem once and for all. And actually, what it's doing is cutting mental health funding. It's amazing that's the shamelessness that's exactly what of it's it. Doing. Mm -hmm. It's cutting funding for services for things like suicide prevention in order to give money to contractors to build homeless housing, which in Los Angeles and a similar program is costing up to $800,000 per yes, unit. Yes, exactly. Because, by, by the way, I mean, I, I, we're here to talk about Proposition 1. Our, our initiative um, that we've, we've spoken about before directly addresses those, you know, the things that are driving the cost of building this, this housing, the environmental lawsuits and yes. the impact fees, which is why it costs $800,000. But anyway, that's an aside. You've got, it's, it's, just, it's just stunning. So, um, um, okay, what is anticipated to be the extra provision that, that you'll get? Let's just take the bond part, the 6.3, but what are we going to get for that? The bond part is a blank check. They won't tell us what they're going to build, but it's $4.4 billion for unspecified places mm -hmm. for treatment for mental health. And it will create about 6,300 slots, 6,380, I think is the number in the legislative analysts in the whole uh, state. analysis that's in the voter guide. Right. Treatment, about 6,800 slots for, for treatment. But what it also does is it spends $2 billion on housing. And here's where it's really deceptive. They're, they're advertising that it's housing for veterans, but yes. only 1 billion of the 2 billion 
is going to veterans. The other billion is going to the project room key kinds of things, project home key, project room key. And all of it, first of all, the housing for veterans is 2,350 units. As of January 2022, the homeless count found 10,400 homeless veterans in California, which is disgraceful because we have approved a bond just, just several years back for homeless housing and homelessness prevention for veterans specifically. Wait, which and one was yet, that? That was in 2014. I think it was Prop 61, but I'm not sure. But it was, I think, oh $600 million dollars for housing for veterans. And was that money well spent? I don't know. I don't know where it is. So wait, so you, they're happened. spending, so you got 6.3 billion, right? Mm -hmm. And then they've got 1 billion, 4 billion of that is going into the, um, the places, the, new, the treatment places, the places. And then there's right. another billion, which is going to housing for veterans. Right. And the, and the housing for veterans is, is, is they're anticipating just over 2000 units and the, right. and for the, the 6,000 places or so from the 4 billion. Is that right? Yes. Yes. I and mean, that's then, just insane. What are so, you talking about? So $4 billion it, to get 6,000 places. Right. Not buildings, not 6,000 buildings that are places, but 6,000 beds in the buildings now, that are Now, of course, places. it's not and literally, they, just so, to be fair, I mean, of course, it's not just a bed. It means the support for that, right? So that's staff right. and, and, you know, et cetera. So, but that's right. unbelievable. $4 billion. Like, Exactly. And you can't use the bond funds to run those places, which is why the counties have to be, they have to step up and use their so funds what are they to, so to what run So what is the money being spent on? Is it to hire mental health professionals? Is that what a slot no, really the, means? No, the bond money, the bond money will be used for brick and mortar. The bond money will be used for buildings. We don't know where or how many we get or what they're going to do. 6,000? That will all be determined later. But that's like, Six, that's that, nothing. Yeah, 6,800 treatment beds and that's, so this could be there, a ward were, in, a, in an existing hospital. They'll just build an extension, that kind of thing, potentially. Well, because they won't ask for a waiver from the Institutions for Mental Disease Exclusion on Medicaid funding, which means yes. large hospitals, they won't ask for a waiver. Then they're going to have to build a lot of different facilities that have only 16 beds each. So what this amounts to is a lot of construction jobs and not a lot of treatment. Oh, Susan, I mean... Every single thing you're talking about is so symptomatic. It captures everything that's wrong in, in California. It's really interesting, this, because you've got, first of all, this kind of goldfish bowl thing where they just pass something. Oh, yes, we're going to solve homeless vets. And then a few years later, oh, we're going to solve homeless vets. What happened to the money that we raised before, the tax increases that did it last? Oh, no, no, no one can remember. No one pays attention. It's all, you know, smoke and mirrors. It's totally deceptive. It's actually going to... It's just funneling more cash into a system that just is completely ridiculous in terms of the costs of um, providing these beds or buildings or whether it's housing or, 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 or mental health. If it's construction, you can be absolutely sure it's going to be a massive ripoff. You're going to have, you know, the people who benefit are going to be the unions and the contract. I mean, and, and the contractors presumably are the people who've lobbied for this and they've made political contributions to. I mean, it, oh. It's the corruption oh, it and the waste it gets and the worse. inefficient. Okay, keep going. It right. gets worse. <laughs> the housing in this measure, which is being sold to the voters as for people who are suffering from substance abuse disorder and mental illness, and they're going to receive treatment. The $2 billion for housing mm -hmm. in this measure will be under the core principle of housing first. Oh, there we are. No one can be turned away for refusing to accept treatment. 
So you will be paying for people to use drugs in the bed where they're supposed to be receiving treatment to stop using drugs because they cannot be required to participate in a program for recovery as a condition of receiving that housing. So $2 billion for housing that people will still be using drugs in. And there's, main, there's a streamlining and ministerial provision, which means that when these buildings are proposed or these conversions of hotels or whatever they're going to be for this housing, there will be almost no community input into where they can be or when they can be or how they can be. So ministerial approval means the cities just have to they just have to accept it. And, and, even, and even in its own terms, it's talking about, um, you know, the maximum number of, I mean, I'm just doing this sort of, what, what's the maximum number of people that they're talking about helping here with this? 10,000, 11? Maxim, the maximum number of housing units is 4,350, according to the Legislative Analyst's Office. That includes the housing for the veterans. Total housing, 4,350. Total treatment beds, about 6,800 slots. And I don't know where the governor is getting the, the number that this helps 10 or 11,000 people because I, I, they're double counting someplace. Yeah, but even that, I mean, even even you look at that, right? That's nothing. I mean, what is it? Right. I, don't, I can't remember. The, we're doing the point in time counts now for homelessness, mm -hmm. county by county, or you know, there's a rolling program across the state. We'll see the number soon. The number I have, I think, currently is it, is it 117,000 across the state? You know, that's just... Um, Jan, as of January 2022, 171,500. Sorry, I got the wrong... That's the seven two, in the wrong place. It's 170,000. Yes, exactly. 171. I mean, right. so what is this? It's just unbelievable. And it's just more taxes. And, so, you know, I, I think a correct way maybe to characterize this is more of the same, but even worse. Exactly. Project room key on steroids is what this is. People will be housed in hotel rooms. They'll call it housing. There will be services down the hall. No one is required to accept those services. No one's required to do anything except the taxpayers. And the worst part of this, as bad as that all is, the worst part is it robs the counties of funding for current mental health treatment programs. So in the name of solving mental health treatment, they are disrupting mental health treatment. And that is just unforgivable. Have you written all this up in, a, in one of your brilliant articles? I did write a column saying no on Prop 1. There was also an editorial in the Southern California News Group that ran, I believe, last Sunday saying no on Proposition 1 for all these reasons. But what you've laid out here is incredible. Your, your knowledge of this and the details matter so much. It's all in the voter information guide that the Secretary of State has mailed to everybody. You can read the Legislative Analyst's Office. You don't have to take my word for it. You can read what the Legislative Analyst's Office concluded in reading this measure and how it burdens the counties to provide these services in these unspecified places. It's mm. all in there. Mailed the, to every voter household. Yeah. Okay. I looked at mine and I read it and I couldn't believe it. Page, I mean, most of it is this thick booklet. Most of it is this is the text of proposition is the legislation in proposition one i mean it just goes on page after page after page and and mm -hmm. your eyes glaze over and actually just as someone who's worked in government you know that that complexity is exactly where all the horrors lie all the yes. kind of payoffs to the to the to the donors and the special interests and the bureaucracy and everything that's that you know will make sure that this program doesn't work is l lurking in the page after page of incredible detail 
Let's just say one word about their so-called oversight that they have in this measure, which they talk a lot about. There are commissions or administrative boards that will oversee the behavioral health spending and the mental health spending, and all the appointees to those commissions are coming from politicians. Some are appointed by the governor, some are appointed by the assembly and the Senate, some are appointed by the superintendent of instruction, and some are appointed by the attorney general. So everybody can participate in the fundraising. Yeah. Everybody can everybody can cash in by by appointing someone who will be able to approve these contracts and that's what they're calling oversight. This is just a mess. It's a it's 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 just stunning. It's an absolute microcosm of everything that's wrong with the way California's run. I mean it's just amazing. And by the way that the, I mean I just want to throw in here it's not in proposition 1. But another example, I mean, then they sort of, and then it happens on the federal level because we just read, didn't we, recently that they they're getting six hundred million dollars from the feds, yes, for California for homelessness, for service providers and contracts, and it's going to yes. be the same again. Again, they're not getting rid of housing first. It's going to be the same, you know, more and more. We've already had twenty-two billion or whatever in the last few years. Here's more money this time from U.S. taxpayers uh, to fund this madness. I mean, it is so absolutely staggering. Um, can I just talk about the process here and, and, and the politics? So I was just reading that in terms of the campaigns, um, they've raised that 14 million, one four, I believe, for, for in favor of Proposition 1. They're already spending the money on ads, these sort of heart-rending ads about the veterans that we owe so much to and everything. And, and then the, on the no campaign, it's very hardly any money, 80,000, I believe. What I mean, how's this going to play out? We have not that long now because it's March the 5th. Well, the governor is uh, shaking people down, to, to put it to put it bluntly. Um, Pacific Gas and Electric contributed uh, $250,000, I think. It's called Governor Newsom's Ballot Measure Committee. That's the proponent. Wow. That's listed in your ballot booklet as the person who is the proponent of this measure. So I think that's a message to every regulated company in California that you don't want to cross Governor Newsom's ballot measure committee make your check payable to governor newsom's ballot measure <laughs> committee it couldn't be more clear this would put people in handcuffs in other states but in california it's all legal i believe that he sincerely would like to solve the problem of you know street homelessness and mental health the mental health crisis that's so deeply connected to it and drug addiction i sincerely believe he'd like to solve the problem so why is he doing something like this that's clearly won't well, we can only speculate about motives, but the political press in California has reported that he was very concerned that he didn't have a legacy project to point to from his years as governor, and, and this was on a deadline for him to get this on the ballot, and he pressured the legislature to remove other things from the ballot that, mm -hmm. were, that had qualified for March to push them to November so that this would have the spotlight all by itself, and he could go out and declare that he was solving homelessness as he has ever since he was mayor of San Francisco. But even in its own terms, it obviously doesn't. I mean, even they don't claim that it's more than 11, sorry, uh, yeah, 11,000. Uh, 11,000 beds. Total. And if you do the math, it's just insanely expensive, particularly if you yeah. do the math after you add the interest costs. It's it's insanely but expensive. That's what I'm saying. Even if you Even if you just ignore all the other negatives that you've pointed out, just and say fine it's great everything's good everything they promised will the, the to deliver will be delivered you've you've hardly made a dent in the problem statewide that's right and you've robbed the counties of important funding for mental health services 
You know, if, if they don't think the counties are doing a good job in providing those services, they can do things about it. They can do an audit. They can do a report. They can try to hold the counties accountable. And, and even if it's just the bully pulpit to call attention to any particular county that's not spending the money well, mm. And perhaps there are reasons that they're not spending the money well. They may have other mandates or other expenses that have put on, been put on them by the state. So that's that's a conversation that we should all be having. But the one thing you don't want to do is put the taxpayers on the hook for $6.38 billion well, it of be borrowed money. Yes. Right. For um, a blank check for unspecified places that the counties will have to pay to run with less money. This is just so poorly thought out yeah. and so rushed and just... Not are, good policy at any level. Are the counties against it? Have counties come out against this? It would not be wise for anyone in government to come out against Governor Newsom's ballot measure committee. But there are several mental health organizations that have very vocally come out against it because of the robbery of the, of the funds for current programs. Amazing. And other concerns that they have about it. It's just a start. I mean, I'm so pleased we did this because, I mean, we, some of this you told me last time when we spoke about it. And, and I, I, I felt there was more and you've given us much more. Um, it's so shocking. Well, I keep saying it, it's not shocking because this is how things that are in California. But I mean, it's, um, ugh, it's, it's, it's actually infuriating. It's so dishonest. And, 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 and everyone agrees that we need to try and solve this problem. And so what do we get? This kind of absolute, I mean, just bullshit, frankly. I mean, I don't like to, you know, <laughs> but it really is. And destructive. It's not even, it's not even that it's kind of harmless and, oh, it's ineffective. It's much worse than that. It's much worse. It's not just a waste of money, but it's a robbery of existing funding yes, for important yes. programs that are desperately needed by the least able to cope in our society. The people the county is taking care of for mental health problems will be impacted by this in a terribly negative way. And it's just unnecessary. Everyone should vote no on Proposition 1. Susan, fantastic. Thank you so much. Honestly, we learned so much from every conversation. We really, really appreciate it. Thank you. And we'll see you soon. Thank you, Steve. All right. Joining us for Candidate Corner today is the candidate for United States Senate for the great state of California, our home state. You've met him before on this show uh, many times. Um, Eric Early joins us. Eric, how are you doing? How's it going? It's great being with you, Steve. The once and future great state of California, I might add. Yes. Yes. Fair point. Um, tell us about the campaign. I mean, there's a, there's we're getting to, close to the um First round, March the 5th is the is the primary. Of course, ridiculously in California, we're in sort of election month now. Yeah. Um, but tell us, tell us how you see things. Well, this campaign has gone great. The people that I've been speaking to all around the state, with limited exception, they all support me. When I get up and speak and I meet the great grassroots and I speak to the various uh, uh, Republican Party GOP uh, committees all around the state and all of their members, they're coming out and endorsing me. It's an amazing thing. I've been endorsed by county after county after county, and I've been endorsed by the California Republican Assembly, which Ronald Reagan back in the day said is the conscience of the California Republican Party, and it still is. And the uh, College Republicans of America and great individuals and all kinds of just really amazing endorsements. So the campaign is going great. I've got a great team. I love talking to the people. Really, the only drawback that we're dealing with, or the biggest drawback, is that um, uh, the uh, gatekeepers of yeah. what Californians are allowed to see and hear, and Americans are allowed to hear, see and hear, uh, 
are keeping me on the other side of the gate. And just to be a little bit more specific, we had the mm -hmm. first major debate in our race yes. about a week or two ago. And there were all kind of, frankly, totally bogus reasons that they kept me off that uh, debate stage. And, uh, and I'd be happy to talk about that. And there's the other, the next major debate is on February 12th. And mm -hmm. some other group is uh, the gatekeeper for that debate. And they're figuring another reason to keep me off the debate stage. So what you end up with on the stage in a state where every poll is showing that between 20 and 40% of Californians are undecided. So mm -hmm. these debates are obviously important. Uh, what you end up with on the debate stage are three uh, far left. Uh, you got Adam Schiff, who's just a despicable lying sack, but he's very slick. You've got uh, Katie Porter, who uh, she proudly calls herself a progressive. And in the year 2024, progressive means communist. And if you uh, and then you've got Barbara Lee and she she might as well have been flown in by the uh, by, from the Kremlin, frankly, because she's so far off the deep end. And then you've got uh, the so-called uh, the Republican, Joe Biden Republican, frankly, and his name is Steve Garvey. And, and he performed exactly as so many of us expected to perform in that first debate. And it, frankly, was really sad. And when I say they, the gatekeepers, you know, the gatekeepers for that first debate were this outfit called Politico, which you know, but mm -hmm. a lot of people may not. It's a left-leaning political outfit, the mm -hmm. media outfit that I call a feeder to the mainstream media. And they uh, and the, uh, the Dornsife School of Politics at USC, which is very left-leaning, um, they were the gatekeepers. And they took a poll. And there, there are over 25 candidates in my race. And, and they claimed that uh, I came in fifth in that poll. And yet mm -hmm. the gatekeepers decided to only put the top four in that poll on that debate stage. It's really interesting. So let's just get, dig into this for a bit. And then I want to make sure we have time for you to just lay out your positions on the issues. But just on this, this point, it is um, like, as you say, there's lots of people in the race. I got my voter guide or whatever the thing that, you know, and there's lots of Republicans. There's many Republicans, but it's obvious that there are two main Republicans, right? There's no question about that. I mean, not that long ago, you were leading the, you were leading the Democrats. I remember it was, I talked about it on my Fox News show. You were, you were the, you were, you were top of the poll, um, ahead of Adam Schiff, Katie Porter, Barbara Lee and, and so on. And so there's no question about who the two main Republicans are. That's you and Steve Garvey. And if you just look at it on a sort of basic math, in a way, um, you look at typically over the last few years, um, decade or so, I make this point all, all the time to people who say, oh, California is such a Democrat state. Well, actually, on many statewide races, most statewide races, races in the last decade or so, it's not like some overwhelming Democrat state. It's about 60, 40, if you, depending on you know different races. So let's just say, take that number. So just proportionally, you would say well, it's not right to have three Democrats and one Republican because that's not six. That's 75, 25. So just on basic math, it feels like it would be fair to have a better balance and have if you've got three Democrats, why can't you have two Republicans? Listen, Steve, we've been seeing it with the presidential debates. You know, they they were putting on what they start off with at least seven, I believe, on the stage. Uh why couldn't they have had five on the stage the other day? And really, you know, I think we know yeah. the reason. My positions are, you know, I'm a Trump supporter, 
I'm a MAGA Republican, and I have positions that the politicos of the world, meaning that outfit politico, and the Dornsife School of whatever they want to call themselves, uh, they don't want my positions set out there to the people of California. From somebody like me, who is really, I am the one Republican in this race that can take on Schiff toe-to-toe and head-to-head, and they know it, and they don't want it out there. Steve Garvey was just really sad, and frankly, even though I'm against Garvey, if I was on that stage, I would have protected him too because I just did not like the way those bullies ganged up on him and took advantage of him. So, uh, yeah, this was an intentional decision to keep me off that stage. The next debate on February 12th, we've already heard, the gatekeeper in that race Mm -hmm. is a company called Nexstar. Mm -hmm. And from everything I'm being told, the couple people who are the decision makers at Nexstar are very Mm left-leaning. They don't want me on that stage at all. And they have a whole other set of criteria. And and meaning minimum number of donors, minimum number of uh, amount of money raised, uh, a certain percentage in the poll. And I am the only candidate, other Republican candidate, other than Garvey, that meets every one of those criteria, except they yeah. boosted up the percentage uh, from their poll, a drop or from some poll, who knows, to make sure that it just cut me off. And it's, uh, it's frankly, it's election interference. It's not fair to the voters of California. It's not fair to me. And uh, but we still keep fighting on, Steve, because really, as yeah. I said, there's only one candidate that can take on this shift or this porter. And you're talking. Actually, to I, I want to get to that in a second. I want you to expand on that. But just again, on the, it, it's just so frustrating when they go on about MAGA Republican. Like President Trump got 40 percent or so, 39 point something, I think, in, in the last election in California. I mean, you know, it's ridiculous when they say that, that, that it's very, very frustrating. People just don't get it. He got um, six million votes in California alone, yeah, Steve. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, OK, so you, let's just get to this point. Take on Schiff, because it does look like Schiff is pretty much the one that's emerging as the one. I mean, he's got all the money. He had Pelosi behind him. He's got the machine, etc. Um, he's being anointed and, by the media. They're yeah, anointed him. by the Democrat machine and the media is basically the same thing. Um, so he's the guy, it looks like, and who will m- emerge to get to the final for November. And so you're, uh, wh- why do you say you're the one that can take him on the best? Well, hopefully your viewers have already figured that out just by watching mm-hmm. me speak here, okay, and compared me to what they've seen of the other guy, the Joe Biden Republican, who's still trying to figure out whether he's going to vote for uh, Donald Trump or Joe Biden for president, which is one of the most disgusting things I've heard from a major Republican candidate in my time, given that Joe Biden is absolutely the worst president of my lifetime. He's a he's he's destroying. There's a national suicide going on that he is intentionally overseeing, assuming he knows what's going on. But um, listen, I'm uh, I'm fighting for what I now call the eyes because they happen to start with I. Immigration, inflation, indoctrination, incarceration, Israel. And I'll be happy to talk about all of them on Interesting. Incarcer- it's a great way of laying it all out. Please do. There, go for it. 
on immigration, 7 million, 8 million plus illegal immigrants across the border. It's a crime against our nation. It's a crime against all American citizens. That border has to be locked up. We have to go back to all the policies Trump had in place. And, uh, and if need be, we should uh, be prepared to send our military to the border to stop it and to, uh, to confront the cartels and stop them. And uh, but but it's got to be stopped. And, you know, I'm a huge supporter of what's going on in Texas right now. The uh, governor of Texas, Greg Abbott, he's taking a brave stand against these uh, these people who are running our country right now. Biden, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, and I stand with with Abbott and with all the red state governors. It's a confederacy of the red states we've got going on here, Mm -hmm. Steve. And I support them to stop this invasion of our country on inflation. Um, every single policy put in place by Biden and supported and voted on by Adam Schiff, Katie Porter, and Barbara Lee is crushing all Americans financially. They can tell us all they want about how great Bidenomics is. We're done with being lied to by politicians. Americans know what's happening with every one of their bills. Americans are being crushed financially. We need to be energy independent again. I support our fossil fuel industry drilling uh, the whole package, fracking, uh, mining, nuclear. You bring down the cost of a barrel of oil. You bring down the cost of just about everything across the board. Indoctrination, they are stealing the brains of our children in their schools. I have lots of experience on this. I was lead lawyer. You know, I run a great law firm, 25 lawyers, practice all over the country. Uh, I was the first lawyer in the country to bring a lawsuit against critical race theory a number of years ago, representing brave parents in Santa Barbara. There's a full-on brainwashing of our kids going on. Highly sexualized stuff shouldn't be in the kids' schools. Uh, dividing kids by race. Teaching Ameri- kids that America's bad. We're all oppressors and uh, white supremacists and colonizers and occupiers. Uh, I'll do whatever I can to protect our parents and children. And going up to the national level, I will look into closely what we do with the billions and billions of taxpayer dollars going to these these colleges that are flat out indoctrinating uh, the students up there to hate our country, uh, total anti-Semitism, the whole package mm-hmm. that they're doing to the students. I believe in higher education, but I don't believe in higher indoctrination. Uh, incarceration, if you're a violent criminal, you commit a crime, you got to be punished. And, and even these, uh, these smash grab types, you got to have bail set. You got to know you're going to be spending time in prison. Uh, you got to know you're going to be convicted. Right now, we're living in a criminal's paradise, paradise in California. We've got to get back to uh, punishing criminals, protecting victims of crime, and protecting all law-abiding Americans. And on Israel, I firmly stand with Israel. Hamas is a death cult. And their uh, their bosses in Tehran, the Tehran mullahs, and their friends at Hezbollah and Islamic Jihad, they hate Western civilization. Make no mistake about it. Mm-hmm. This is a battle of Western civilization against a theocratic regime from hundreds of years ago. Uh, they hate everything we stand for. They hate Christianity. They hate Judaism. They're sick, twisted. They They are a death cult. And we have to let Israel do what it needs to do to, as it says, destroy Hamas. And the last people that should be involved in that debate are the great appeasers of our time. Joe Biden and his whole package of Obama followers, you know, 
yeah. you know, Anthony Blinken and uh, well, that's Malley, exactly that right. guy, and John Kerry, and Adam Schiff, and the whole package. They brought these mullahs back to life. Yeah, the appeasement. I mean, it's the uh, their ideology of appeasement. I've spoken about that many times. Um, so I think everyone can see, Eric, <laughs> you've got clear positions on the issues. It's, and, and also, you're very clear that you support uh, Donald Trump. Um, so I want to put to you something that I've heard um, people say. I'm sure you've heard it too, which is, again, it's going back to the kind of the, the structure of the race and our top two system and so on, where you've got the Democrats obsessing about, well, we've got as if it's their right to control all the offices in California. Outrage. These are the people that lecture us endlessly about democracy, saying, well, it'd be outrageous if you had a Republican in the final. I mean, it's amazing. They said, wait, we, you know, we've got to have two Democrats because, of course, it's really important that there's no choice for the voter. Um, but on the Republican side, you have people saying, well, look, it's quite touch and go. It looks like Schiff is ahead. But then for the number two spot that's going to make it to November, you have it's Katie Porter, typically, that's there trading places with Steve Garvey in, in some of these polls. And so I hear people saying, well, hang on a second. If you took Eric Early's support um, and added it to Steve Garvey, he'd definitely be there in the top two. Isn't it better that you have a Republican? Um, wouldn't it make sense for Eric to drop out of the race and enable people who support him uh, to vote for Steve Garvey as a Republican, thereby guaranteeing that you get a Republican in the in the final? What do you make of that argument? Yeah, you know, there's a lot of political geniuses out there, Steve, who generally don't know what the heck they're talking about, but they make a lot of money doing it. And I really don't pay much attention to political geniuses. But I will tell you, because you mentioned that poll, uh, when I got in this race and uh, there was a clear shot to ending up in the top two. That's why I was leading uh, when I got in, uh, because we asked all the usual suspects, you would call them in the Republican Party, some of these major names. Are you going to run for Senate? Are you going to run for Senate? Kept getting back, no, 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 because I didn't want to split the vote. But yeah. all I saw were these sort of, uh, you know, you know, these others that were just totally under the radar. I said, so we decided to get in. Well, then Garvey got in the race. So, you know what? Garvey should get out of the race because, unfortunately, the man doesn't really, he's not ready for prime time, shall we say. Okay. And uh, he is a rookie in baseball terms. He was a great baseball player once. But... Um, He's the one who should get out of the race. And yeah, I will end up in the top two because I'm going to tell you something. Uh, if the top two is Adam Schiff and Steve Garvey, this is not a live TV broadcast. It's a podcast. So I think I could say the following word. Steve Garvey is going to get his ass kicked. Okay. <laughs> and, and there is only one candidate, one Republican in this race who can walk it and talk it. And it's me. And I'm the only guy in this race that can take on Schiff and go after him left, right, and center. I mean, this whole thing about how he's fighting to protect democracy, I could go on about that right now if you want me to. Uh, so, yeah, if uh, if they don't want to split the vote, Steve, Garby, see ya. You can take your uh, team of grifters with you and just get out of the race. But I'm, I'm going to continue fighting here because at the end of the day, even if Steve Garvey ended up in the top two, just like I said, that's going to be a, a disaster for the Republican Party. It'll be an embarrassment for our state Republican Party. They're trying their best to keep Garvey under wraps. And if he moves forward, they're going to have a harder and harder time to do that. And, and if we as Republicans are going to go down in this state, and we know the demographics, and I'm not saying I would go down in the top two, but we should go down fighting for our principles and not go down like a bunch of dogs 
yet again, which has happened year after year after year in these major statewide races. And I'm the only fighter in this race as a Republican who can walk it and talk it. I get the issues. Uh, I care deeply about this state. I, for, I fight for all forgotten Americans, which I could uh, explain to you what I mean by that if you had time, but that cuts across party lines, racial lines, the whole uh, socioeconomic lines. And, um, and there it is. And that's why we fight. My wife and I, we love this country. We don't need the job. I have a very blessed life, great law yeah. firm, great family. Uh, you know, if I get the job of senator and I want the job, I'll take a major cut in pay. But we know that this country is on edge. We could lose it all in this country. We have these American Marxists, as Mark Levin calls them, call them socialists, call them far left, call them whatever you want. They've broken through the gates of our country. The domestic enemies are in our country. They're all over. They've done the long march through the institutions. They control the major institutions in government, not in government. And we've got to get them out of those positions and get our country back for we the people. For all Americans, this again crosses party lines, racial lines, who love our country dearly. And we, so many of us, see what's going on. And I'm the only one in this race that can do it. And Schiff is the one taking the country and Porter totally in the direction of the American Marxists. That's why when Schiff claims he's fighting for democracy, you know what they mean when they say they're fighting for a democracy? They're fighting for autocracy. Yes, but they're trying to turn this country into one party just like what we've been dominated by in the state of California, which has led to complete failure in California. I'd be happy to talk about that more if you want. I'd love to. I'd love to. We can't right now because um, these these candidate interviews are are, are sort of shorter than than some of our previous conversations. So we're going to have to wrap it up there. But I don't think anyone uh, will be in any doubt about where you stand and how you're planning to fight. Last point, just to make sure people are aware if they want to support you, how they can do that. Let people know how they get involved in your campaign. Go to ericearly.com, E-R-I-C-E-A-R-L-Y.com. You can donate. We definitely need your donations. You can sign up to volunteer. You can tell us you want a yard sign. Uh, We're getting huge support from all around this state. As I started this interview, Steve, when people see me speak, when our great grassroots Republicans see me speak, there's a reason why I'm the one getting the endorsements from all of them. And, uh, and these others we talked about today, simply or not. Well, Eric, thank you so much for being with us today. We really appreciate it. Um, good luck out there. Thanks again for having me, Steve. It's always of a course. pleasure talking to you. All right, everybody, here is what I want to get off my chest this week. And it's about Taylor Swift. And no, it's not what you're thinking. Well, maybe if you know me by now, maybe it is what you're thinking, which is I think the whole thing is ridiculous um, for so many different reasons. Um, but I think the the main one that I don't think anyone anyone's really spoken about, um, and I just want to talk about with you today, is this whole notion that somehow ex- an artist expressing a political view means that they're you know that they're kind of losing their fan base or whatever. I mean, for, I mean, art in its broadest sense has always been there to make political statements. I mean, if you you know we were just in Spain and and, and went round the Prado and there's just some amazing art in there and, and it's high and, and the art that you see and you go to these museums and most many of the things that you see there they are very very political they are they are the equivalent of the editorial column or the you know cable news segment or whatever of, of the day um, of today back then when when those technologies weren't available art has always been political and artists have always been political I don't know 
where Taylor Swift stands on politics or anything else. You know, she obviously made one intervention, uh, two, two interventions in 2018 in the Tennessee senatorial race and then with Biden. And then she encouraged people to register to vote. You know, fine, whatever. Let, you know, I don't think that, that a single person will actually have their vote changed by the opinions of, of any celebrity. That's not how it works. I mean, it's just much more, you know, I think give people more credit for thinking about the issues a bit more deeply. To me, the most interesting thing about this that they made me think about is that artists, musicians and, and so on, typically lean left. I mean, that's just true. I mean, we, we can see that. And, and, you know, people make jokes about it and conservatives go on about Hollywood and so on. But in a, in a way, that's to me the interesting question. Why is that? Because on one level, you would think that actually the conservative philosophy, the right of center philosophy is way more appealing to artists because the conservative philosophy in its in the form that certainly that I, I would advocate is all about freedom and doing your own thing and not having people boss you around. And the whole kind of vibe, if I can use that term in this context of the left, which is telling you what to do, do this, do that, don't do the other, feels like very antithetical to the impulse, the creative impulse of the artist, which is to be left alone to do their thing and express themselves and so on. And it's more that aligns to me much more with the conservative philosophy. So it's just an interesting thing to me that the artists typically um, are on the left. Um, but they are. That seems to be the way our culture works. I, I, don't, I honestly don't understand why this has become such a massive thing. I think it's probably something to do with the way well, probably the way the media works today, I think it's all ridiculous. But I think the really interesting question is, is it possible for um, movements on, on, on the right, conservative movements, Republican, whatever you want to call it, to actually make some headway with young people and the creative community by emphasizing um, a belief in freedom and opportunity that I think aligns more with the creative spirit? All right, that is our show for today. Hope you enjoyed it. Make sure you follow us on Apple, Spotify, YouTube, wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure you join us next week for the next edition of The Steve Hilton Show. Bye.